you wanted the best, you've got the best podcast. The hottest, hottest. podcast in the world. In the world. The Chris Voss Show, the preeminent podcast with guests so smart you may experience serious brain bleed. Get ready, get ready. Strap yourself in. Keep your hands, arms, and legs inside the vehicle at all times because you're about to go on a monster education roller coaster with your brain. Now, here's your host, Chris Voss. Hi, folks. This is Voss here from the com. The com. Thanks for coming by the show, guys. We really appreciate it. I think David's uh, thoroughly in here is on the show with us, David Gergen. And it's probably the first time he's been on an MMA uh, wrestling federation style on the show. You got that one right, but I'm learning something. They don't do this on CNN. So we're excited to announce my new book is coming out. It's called Beacons of Leadership, Inspiring Lessons of Success in Business and Innovation. It's going to be coming out October 5th, 2021. And I'm really excited for you to get a chance to read this book. It's filled with a multitude of my insightful stories, lessons, my life, and experiences in leadership and character. I give you some of the secrets from my CEO Entrepreneur Toolbox that I use to scale my business success, innovate, and build a multitude of companies. I've been a CEO for, uh, what is it, like uh, 33, 35 years now. We talk about leadership, the importance of leadership, how to become a great leader, and how anyone can become a great leader as well. Or order the book wherever fine books are sold. Anyway, we have David Gergen on the show, as uh, you probably have been figuring out right now. He is the author of the newest book, Hearts Touched with Fire, How Great Leaders Are Made. It just barely came out May 10th, 2022, so you want to get a chance to order this book up and check it out. I think you're going to love it from my experience. We'll talk about it on the show. David, let's see. David is a professor of public service and founding director of the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard Kennedy School. In addition, he serves as a senior political analyst for CNN and works actively with rising generation of new leaders. In the past, he has served as a White House advisor to four U.S. presidents. Only four, David? Come on. Let's see. Both parties, Nixon, Ford, Reagan, and Clinton. He wrote about those experiences in New York Times bestseller, Eyewitness to Power, The Essence of Leadership, Nixon to Clinton, and now he has his uh, wonderful book he's going to be talking about today. Welcome to the show, David. How are you? Terrific, Chris. I'm delighted to be here. And uh, we've just been in the wake of it. We made the New York Times bestseller list this past Sunday. Woohoo! We're, we're thrilled about that. Congratulations. And, and, well, thank you. And it was, we, it, I wasn't sure. If we were built for that or not, but it, so far it's been encouraging. We're delighted and uh, equally so delighted to be with your show. Congratulations. And it's an honor to have you as well. It is an awesome book, so it's definitely well-deserved and, and should be, you know, definitely continue to be a bestseller. Give me your plugs, your dot-coms, wherever you might want to have people look you up on the interwebs to find out more about you. Well, I guess you can go to davidgergen.com. What would work? Gergen is G-E-R-G-E-N. First name is Dave. There you go. So, David, what motivated you to write this book? Well, I've been teaching for a long time, and I thought I had some lessons I'd like to impart uh, to people who came after my teaching. That was sort of the start of it, and that was two three years ago, maybe four or five years ago, actually. And in any event, I had other obligations at the time, life kept on getting in the way, so I never really got started. But then, you know, we, we started having this cascade of crises in the country, something that's very threatening to our democracy. And I decided I really wanted to speed it up because I think 
one of the ways we're going to get out of this mess, and one of the best ways we're going to get out of this mess, is for a new generation to come to power. So we have fresh energy, fresh blood, fresh vision. You know, we've got a lot of folks like me. I just turned 80. You know, we, we shouldn't be running things anymore. You know, you're in your 80s. It's great to be on the sidelines and kibitz and give, give, give thoughtful sage advice. Of course, of course, we have sorts of sage things to say. But, you know, I, I, I think we need to, I think we need to prepare the next generation. And the earlier we pass the baton, the better. That sounds a little ageist, David, to be quite honest with you. It sounds a little bit ageist to say. Uh, oh, yeah, of course it's ageist. <laughs> That's the way the world works. That's the way the world works. You know, listen, when I came to, to uh, Washington, the World War II generation was uh, was in charge. Those were veterans from, from the world, from the war. We had seven presidents from John Kennedy through George H.W., different, different parties. All seven wore in military uniform. Everyone sacrificed something in his life. Several put their put their lives on the line. And frankly, they turned out to be terrific at government mm-hmm. because they were well prepared for it. They were hardened up. They, you know, they fought under the same flag. Of course, they were going to work together to, to try to do good things back home. That was a wonderful generation. And, you know, Tom Brokaw aptly called them the greatest generation. But the generations that succeeded, then they, the sandwich generation, the Generation X, as they were called, they were born between 65 and 1980. You know, that's you, right? Yeah. Uh, and there have been some excellent individuals in the, the, the baby boom gener- generally. But I think you'd have to say that overall, especially compared to the World War II generation, it's been a disappointment. I mean, some things have, have piled up, but we don't have much to show for it. Yeah. Or two generation left the stage. We were the strongest nation since the days of ancient Rome in terms of our economic power, our military power, our cultural power. We were respected everywhere. Right now, yeah. we're, in, we're seen as in retreat. Then yeah, we do some things right, but they're modest. And we're more paralyzed and poisoned than we are productive. And it's, is there anything you could directly attribute to that? Is it because because we need more fresh, younger leadership, or what? What do you? Well, I, I, and why do I say that? Why do we? Why do? Well, first of all, I've had the privilege, of, as I say, of teaching in the classroom now for about a quarter of a century, mostly at the Kennedy School. So it's a it, yes, it, there are a lot of elite people come there for graduate studies. This is for people who are basically looking for a master's, and they go off and try to do good things in the world. But I have seen the quality of people coming through fairly dramatically improve over the over the years. And so I see, I see especially. The young people, we've, we've got a lot of scholarships now for veterans because you know, we want them to get, you know, for, get to complete their education and go on to do great things. I think they're going to be the leaders of the future. I'm right there at the forefront of the leaders for the future. And we've now, we have a whole stream of, of young veterans who are coming through, come to the county school, come to other schools. They're running for office. They're running for Congress. They're running for city, the city hall. They're running for, you know, the, the uh, teachers, and they want to be there for PTA and things like that. These people are really serious about changing the direction of the country. The millennials and uh, Generation Z, as they're called, I think are particularly well prepared uh, to do that. We, but we need to do more to prepare them than they are now. They're in, they're in the forefront. But I, I'm happy to be a big believer in national. I believe every young person ought to be encouraged to give at least a year back uh, to community. And if you can, give two years. And then you knock it off your, your, your debt, your college debt, or whatever debt you piled up. You get a year. You give us a year. We give you a year of debt reduction. And we give you a chance to go work in places you've never lived before. You come out you come out of Brooklyn or something like that. 
we're going to send you to the Rocky Mountains. You're going to be deep in the forest. This will be a good experience for you. And vice versa. People coming out of rural America need to come and see what it's like to live in the cities and why we have, you know, how do we, why do we have so much crime in our cities these days? What the hell is going on? You know, why, why are these mental health issues? All the different things that are accumulating now. We need fresh people to come in and deal with this and people who are more confident. You know, country right now has lost its, it's caught, lost the confidence in, in our leadership. We don't think they lead, the, the, we don't think they're very good leaders and, and the institutions they're serving don't lead very well either. Do you think, do you think that a lot of it may be the decline of the middle class over the last 40 years? Yeah. You know, and, yep. and people just have gotten more desperate. I think, well, I think there's that element that, that people are living much, much closer to the bone now before. And I, I think it's also, Chris, the fact that we see these problems and we all go, oh, oh, this is awful. You know, whether it's Buffalo or whether it's going to be Texas or the shootings. But but nobody expects anything to be done in a serious way. It's sort of like, I mean, people calling out to Biden when he was there, you know, do something, do anything, just do something. And I think that reflects the, uh, the sort of downcast quality of like, can we ever get anything right anymore? Yeah. And I, I think we can. I, I, you know, famously... Abigail Adams, who was the wife of John Adams, wrote a letter to their teenage son, John Quincy. And basically what she argued was at adverse times, bad times, were actually what what calls forward good leaders, great leaders. And she said, you know, the statesmen arise from the, the troubles we, we have in life. And I think that over time what you're going to see is that these new generations will help us bounce back. That I'm, I'm Chris. Listen, I'm a short-term pessimist. I think it's going to be pretty rough in the next five or six years. But I'm increasingly a long-term optimist. Or I certainly am hopeful. That led. That was my next question for you. Do we have to hit a bottom before we? Uh, can we bounce back? Well, I sure as hell like to think we hit bottom already. <laughs> well, hopefully, a lot of people. Did, did you hit more of a bottom than Donald Trump presidency? Yeah, is that possible? Second term, possibly. Second term is very possible. Yeah, he's no. he, he remains a, a very very influential figure, the most influential figure in the yeah. party, and one of the most influential in, in in the country. Yeah. So I mean, was with your book. This is a great book on leadership. You know, I I love leading in leadership. Yeah, you've written books on leadership. Yeah, beacons of leadership and and but you you kick my butt on this one. This one's awesome. <laughs> and what what's really brilliant about this book is not only have you just done almost an exhaustive study and inclusion of just about everything you could think of to developing yourself as a leader, thinking as a leader, also covering the pitfalls of a leader, but you've interwoven it with the history of the world, America, and your personal history and going to politics and your service to government. And it's, it's really an extraordinary read. I'm not, I'm not, I'm just amazed. It's, it's just wonderful. How long did it take you to write? Um, Sixty-eight years. Sixty years. I was. That was one of the things. As soon as I said that, I, I when I got serious about it, it came during the pandemic, because I was, you know, like everyone else, I was sidelined for a significant period of time. I had a lot of uh, time on my hands I could use, and and I, uh, we have a little place down on the Cape Cod, and uh, we went and settled there for you know a week or two at a time. And I just tried, just tried to turn to and, and and write the darn thing, you know. Some of it, as you say, because some of it is autobiographical, that was easier to write than some of the historic. On the other hand, I felt that stories are really important. That's what yeah. 
that's what moves people. That's what excites them. It's what motivates them to read. So I, I tried to interweave some of the stories that I find the most interesting or, or moving. Yeah. And when I was young, I tried to read Peter Drucker's books on yes. you know, management, leadership, yep. everything. Yep. And yep. it's like reading medical books. I mean, he was brilliant. <laughs> he was brilliant, but it's he was bro- dry. He it's was brilliant. Time. I knew Peter Drucker and uh, you know, spent some time with him. He was, uh, I'll tell you one thing that impressed me greatly is that he had CEOs. He was, he was mostly California, Southern California. And he had CEOs who fly across the country just to come and spend an afternoon with him and get advice. And then they'd come back. They, he was, he had a, he had a serious following. And I think that, you know, there are people who come since then, like the Jim Collins, who's got a huge read. Warren Bennis, who was a dear, dear friend of mine. We lost Bill George, who was a, who really pioneered the work on, on True North. There have been a number of people who might think have come along behind, but Peter Drucker, you have to say, in terms of business business readership, number one. Number yeah, one. almost like an encyclopedia. Yeah. I mean, it was just, so, but the thing I loved about your book that I was leading into with Peter Drucker is it's a very easy read. Like, I could give this to my Gen Z nephew, who right yeah. now is about 21, 22. Yeah. And it's, it, it hops. It's, you go towards a, a lot of different points in the book. They're easy to get through. You know, they're not yeah. long, yep. lengthy, arduous things. Right, right. Points I, to move through. I, I'm not trying to run an academic. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not up to it anyway. It's better with. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it's exhaustive. I mean, you've covered, I, I was going through it, and I'm just like, he's touched on, like, every single thing you can think of. Like, mm-hmm. like it's just extraordinary. And and uh, you even talk about some of the low parts of, of uh, the low arts of public leadership. I thought that yeah. was kind of interesting. Yeah. You talk about falling down. You know, I read a lot of manuals on when I was growing up at 18 on how to be a leader, how to be a CEO. I was preparing my first company. I started at 18. But I, I, no one ever said, hey, here's the stuff you should watch out for, the bad parts, the low parts. Yeah, you got to know that. But otherwise, you, if you don't, you know, it's, it's like everything else, you know, what what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And, but you know, so many people have, especially kind of people who go to elite schools, you know, they've had their, their paths streamed with rose petals, as the saying goes. But life is not like that. Life is not kind to anybody in that sense. So you got an F Franklin Roosevelt. He had, he had a gorgeous life for 20, 25 years. It looked like he was going to be, but he was seen as very light, light in his shoes. Uh, and then he was struck down by polio, the worst scourge of his day. People thought it was con- it was contagious. You know, they hit people up in the attic and that sort of thing who were, who were came down with it. But what, what that was Roosevelt's crucible moment, as we call it in leadership literature. And some people in the crucible, crucible moment, the research shows a bunch of people who go through crucibles and get knocked down really, really hard. They never get back up. There are also another group of people who, who within a year or so, because they have a lot of resilience, within a year or so, they're back up. They're not going great, great, but they're fine. I mean, they're where, where they were before they got hit. Then there is this third group that's really the most interesting, and that is the group that goes down. They're down for a while. They can, their Roosevelt thought God had forsaken him, and God, God had forgotten him, and he tried for seven years to, to walk again, never managed to do that. But it, but it was that... Through that experience, that crucible, he, he, Roosevelt, and so many others have found that they actually gain in strength. They especially gain in moral purpose. You know, it was like Reagan after he was shot and, and telling everybody, telling us on staff, you know, I was spared and I, I, I owe the rest of my life to God for sparing me. And that is that that was sort of a, it was a religious commitment. 
but it was a way of life commitment as well. And that's what you find. And I, I found out with Catherine Graham that they went to Washington Post, in which she, when her husband committed suicide and she was a housefrau. And, you know, and, and she built herself into Catherine Graham, the publisher, and the, with the most successful publisher of her day. There are people like John McCain. You know, there's a guy named Jim Stockdale, and uh, you probably don't know that name, but and, and he was he was one of the people like McCain who was shot down over Vietnam, and you know, wound up time was spending time at the Hanoi Hilton. That POW experience for McCain, Stockdale, and others for other Americans longest time in a prison, foreign prison of any of any generation, and yet they came through and came out of it stronger. I mean, that's remarkable. It says so much about who they are as individuals, but what's possible. And because you think about it at the beginning, you think, oh, my God, you're going to get struck down by cancer or this or that. It's 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 unbelievable. Somebody just sent me a story of Art Garfunkel and a fellow he grew, grew up with. And there's a and, and Garfunkel, his, his best friend, uh, had eye disease and went blind. And Art Garfunkel stood by him and he was his lightness. They, they, their, their song about the darkness let the light go in came from that experience. Wonderfully inspiring story. stories. There are so many of these inspiring stories that we have to tell young people, give it your best shot. You may well get knocked down. Things may go badly for you. You may lose a parent. You may get worse. You may lose a child. All these things can happen to you, but you still can make a difference. And you can, and you, you can be a force in your community. We don't need, in this new generation, we do need some people to top. We need, you know, where are our Zelenskys in the United States? Why haven't we had Zelenskys among our men? But there's an awful lot of work to be done at the community level, you know, building up neighborhoods, having growth come from the bottom up. And I will tell you, I think that a lot of black women are showing the way on it. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are, I think are bringing a moral quest and a moral commitment to the arena, which has been, and I don't like some of their politics, they're, they're too liberal for me in some cases for this or the, the Black Lives Matter movement or the Me Too movement or so forth. And AOC in particular, I, I part company with their own on, uh, on the policy. But I, I think, Chris, we should celebrate the fact that they're in the arena. They're giving it their best shot. Yeah. Here's their perspective. Good. We need to get your perspective. We Everybody ought to have a voice. Yeah. I, you, you bring up a good point. And I, I like how your book is written in a way that can help people have a broad-based painting of leadership, not only to build it. And you, you have so much stuff that you've, you've put into it from all, even just little things like little character bits and little, little pieces of like, here's what to do here. And like I say, I read a lot of books on how to succeed when I was young. I could have used some more books like yours where there was a part in it, like, here's what happens when you fail. You know, my cathartic times that I went through uh, crises in my life definitely built you did, you did, your own crises. Yeah. Yeah, I've survived. I think I have. I don't know. I'm <laughs> Let me pinch myself. But uh, what are some other things that you want to tease out about the book to encourage readers to pick it up? Well, I think a couple of things that are not well appreciated as I think they should be in leadership development. I've, I've, I've tucked them away at the back of the book called Booster Rockets. But one was one is just as a leader is is not born, but is made, and in my judgment, self-made. So, so is so is in some ways, so, so is a public figure who takes seriously the ideas of public service and tries to translate them into progress. You know, we have people who are self-educated impress the hell out of me. You know, take, take Harry Truman for example. 
Yeah, and and when when he graduated from high school, his parents were too court sent him to college, so he went back to the family farm, and he 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 lived behind a, a farm a mule, plowing that, that that farm for seven years. But during that time, he got self educated. He read and he read and he read, and by the time he you know got into public life, he was the best read. He's the only president of the 20th century never went to college, and yet he was the first president. He was probably the brightest figure in that in, in that whole group in terms of being self-educated. So, and look at General Mattis. He's another, I, I became friendly with General Mattis through writing this book and working with him, reading his stuff, and we talked a lot, and we're going to try to do some things on the road together. But he's a, he's a wonderfully self-educated man. He is, as a Marine, he just read and read and read. When he had his, one of his last assignments, and they said he could take his books with him, his personal books, you know, his personal little library. Turned out he has 7,000 books. Holy crap. Books. And he read them. Wow. He read them. He, he was a, I'm sorry, you know, so that's a remarkable thing to start with. And I do think it's important. I think it's important to read and to, and to, and to keep your mind open and to keep learning because we live in a very quickly changing world. And it's going to be one of the most important things as historians will say is that History sped up a lot yeah. during our current time. So that's one issue that I think is really important. It doesn't get enough attention. But the other, I think I think leaders, to be really effective, truly need a good good sense of humor. I, I think you've got to be able to, you know, some things are so painful, you just got to laugh. That was sort of what Lincoln found. And and that's true. And I the, the presidencies, I remember, one of the reasons I'm nostalgic for the Reagan presidency, even though I'm not as conservative as he is, I'm obviously much more of a centric. But Reagan had a great sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, he, he could just bowl you over with it. And he didn't need the presidency. He wasn't like Nixon, who, you know, who, whose life would have been judged a failure had he not made it to the White House. And, yeah. But with, with Reagan, he didn't need to go to the White House. He'd already had a you know, great opportunity. But he came to he came to understand we so we had a lot of pranks in those days and and just good times. I I tell people, I remember how Reagan and Tip O'Neill got along. Reagan, the most conservative president, in a long time. Tip O'Neill, the most liberal speaker of the House, in a long, long time. And yet they hit it off together. Both of them, and they had a little pact between them that you could not tell out of the, your opponent up until about five o'clock in the afternoon. But after that, you're supposed to put down your differences and raise a class. And you can have, you know, tell old Irish yards and have a laugh and scratch, have a good time. And they began working together. And then, Chris, over time, they began to trust each other. They got big things done. They got major overhaul of Social Security, major overhaul of the tax code, things that nobody else could have done. They they got done. But he also, you know, developed this very, very nice relationship with Tip. So that when O'Neill turned like 65 or 70, I can't remember which one of Reagan invited him to a birthday party down at the White House and invited all his friends. He had a big group there. And after after lunch was over, Reagan got up to get, to make a toast. And he said, Tip, if I had a ticket to heaven and you didn't have one too, well, I'd give my ticket back and go to hell with you. <laughs> That's a great line. I love that line. Yeah. You know, like you say, reading is so important and, and educating yourself. And yeah. Do you feel like a lot of the young people do that nowadays? Because I don't know. I mean, it's it's something they need. It's something I, I, they need to do. No, I think they don't read. You know, the, they don't read the daily newspapers anymore. That's for sure. Yeah. Maybe the Sunday paper they'll take a look at. But so much of it comes across on social media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, and social media we've discovered is a two-edged sword. 
You know, and on one hand, it's, it produced access for a whole lot of people who would never have a voice in the nation's discourse. They can go right in there and get right in the middle of the tweet and build a following and, so, you know, all the rest. So that's the good part. The, the bad part is that so many people are learning how to exploit it and to put out disinformation that's just not true and to sort of get the nation all tangled up in what's true and what's not true. And after a while, you begin not to, not to trust anybody. Because you don't know what the hell you're reading. Yeah. If it's if it's probably wrong, it's going to set you off in the wrong direction. So, I'm sympathetic up to a point that people aren't reading as much as they should. But I do think if you're serious about public life, it's better to be a reader than a non-reader. When I, I'm going back to Harry Truman, I, I, w I went out to his library. It was a wonderful good library because it's so modest. But I found a, I kind of found a copy of a speech he liked to give to high school students that would come through Independence and come out to his library. And he said, he, he told the students, not every reader is a leader, but every leader, yeah. there's much to be said for that. There really is. I mean, I, I started my first company at 18, but I was an accidental entrepreneur. And yeah. I was set up to go to college with a Pell Grant. My parents were poor. Nothing wrong with that. But, uh, you know, I had a Pell Grant. And I, you know, I was making what I thought was really good money for being 18, living at home at 18. And I put school, but I knew I needed an education. So I started yeah. reading voraciously. I, yeah. ordered, I ordered the Harvard Business Reviews yeah. courses. They're yeah. magazine that they, I think, uh, recorded they would put out. I think they still do. But I, I did everything to train to become a CEO of a big company for the multimillionaire companies that I eventually built. And, and I, and I planned it that way, but I read, I, I knew that even though I wasn't going to college, I needed some sort of education and reading was the way that I got there. And a lot of people, like you mentioned, did. Huh. That's so, that's so interesting. I did not know that about your background. Yeah. Fascinating. Parallels to other people who come through life and, and I think done well, because it, it, it's also true that the time some people would use reading, spending too much indoors. You are out there in the real world trying yeah. to help somebody having an idea, following your bliss, uh, but trying to build an organization at 18. That's a remarkable thing to do. I mean, yeah. I, think that, uh, I think that's probably, uh, yeah, I would imagine that's been a big booster in your own uh, life. Oh, definitely. I mean, it really helped me understand what I would need to do when it got to the scale. Now, like I said, I didn't read any books like yours that say, hey, there's some dark yeah. times. <laughs> you do with this watch out for that. But thank God for Harvard Business Review or else I would have been. Yeah, well, I know. they charge an arm and leg, but they, they get, you get your money. It was well worth it. I think it was like yeah. 75 bucks a pop back then, back in the, was the 86 cities. So it, this is a great book. You know, you talk about how a lot of our leaders now, I think I've seen different interviews about discouraging Biden and Trump from running. You know, we have leader, the uh, House leaders and other people. And, and, when I, you know, and they're wonderful folks, but when I, when I see them like trying to deal with some of the AI and technology and some of the newer yeah. stuff, yeah. you know, you saw some of the Senate and congressional hearings on them that were just embarrassing because these folks just weren't up to par. And maybe yeah. there is a need for, I mean, do we need a, that was the question I have for you. Is there a cutoff we should have for Congress instead of a, I, I think, I think we need a, a general cultural shift to say that. You know, once you get past your mid sixties, you you really ought to be you know sort of starting to step back a little bit. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think in the case of some individuals, you can go into your seventies, but I don't think you ought to be running big organizations. Most, it, it, I understand the routine of most businesses in the country. Yeah, the, with the CEO question of how old should a CEO be, they generally see sixty five as a good a good time to be 
moving back. I mean, you can go on and you can be a consultant to the company or you can work with the CEO or they work with the board or whatever. But as a general proposition, I think, you know, for especially for a big company, you you need STEM and traveling around the world, particularly if you're doing global kind of work, and you got to be in a plane half the life. Yeah. That, that yeah. can take, you know, you can get beat up on that. But there, but there are other ways. You, I, ju- I just think it's inappropriate to, to be become president when you're in your 80s. It, like, we're, you're asking the whole country to take, you're asking the whole world to take a risk. Mm-hmm. Take a risk which, which we shouldn't have to take. And that is, will you be compass mentis over these next four years? What do we do if you start, you know, if you start deteriorating? Um, in terms of your mind or your emotions or anything else, how do we handle that? I mean, we we went through this once with Woodrow Wilson when he had a stroke or the end yeah. of and his wife basically ran the company country. But you could never do that today. You could never have that kind of, you know, the kind of secrecy about it. We'd know within a flash. And now, even now, people you know are are uncertain about the. the hell to be the one of these guys. We've got people on the hill. You know, leaders of both parties on the hill into their 70s and i just i just turned 80 and i can tell you from just personal experience you you you, you lose something you lose a little, some of your energy you lose a little sense of having a long runway you 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 don't you don't sign up quickly for a project that's going to be a 10-year long project mm-hmm. and and so it's like i think the country would be safer and it'd be good. I think there ought to be some couple of heavyweights around the president, whoever the president is. You want to have a couple of heavyweights. Yeah. yeah, I mean that's the one thing we talk about with the Silicon Valley. I mean, I see a lot of Silicon Valley startups. They'll bring a lot of young kids in, yeah. and and they love the young kids because they work fairly cheaply, and they they'll work their butts off. You know, they'll they'll do the twenty four hour stuff that I did when I was young. But you know, a lot of times they don't bring a mix of the older folks that have the experience yeah. and knowledge. And then those, I'll see, I mean, I'll see multi-million dollar startups fail, uh, billion dollar valuations fail. And, and you just go, you, you could have hired a couple old people <laughs> who might give you some good advice. Well, I, I really love the book. I'm, I mean, it's, I just, just reading through it. I'm like, wow, he thought of everything. <laughs> and, and I was just amazed, uh, persuasion, digital world master eloquence and then of course you weaved it in with being a service to the government and everything else just 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 great stuff and it's so simple and easy to go through it it's just it's a it's a read that keeps you captivated so i just love yeah. that book and i think you did an awesome job on it well chris I, you're, you're very kind generous with your comments but but i, I do want you to know i appreciate it i appreciate the chance to be here with you yeah and we appreciate it too anything more you want to tease out on the book before we go no i think other than the fact that we have, we need a sense of urgency. We can't go on like this. We're on a non-sustainable path. As, I, as I've written, and perhaps I came to my head from somebody else, but it, it's as if we were in a car driving along the side of a cliff. It's three thirty in the morning with no headlights and a rainy day and a rainy night. And you know you can do that for a while, but you're taking huge danger. You're taking real risks to the future. And we 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 do we do we cannot afford a failed future. Too much depends on getting this right in the next few years. No matter who gets elected, we need to be able to govern as a people. If it's John Trump, it's Donald Trump. But let's make it work. Yeah. Do we need a new John F. Kennedy? Yes. I remember John was young, yep. and people yep. like he's too young. Yes. I, he, he, I think that charisma made a huge difference for him. Yeah. yeah. 
and people liked him. And, you know, and he also told the truth when he had Bay of Pigs the first hundred days, you know, it was a failed coup attempt against Castro in Cuba. And Kennedy got in and he he dramatically lowered the the profile of the United States, how many planes and so forth we're going to use, how many people we're going to send in, while he also increased the difficulty of, of the task. And it wound up to be a disaster. And then Kennedy went and basically went to the Rose Garden and said, you know, defeat, victory has many fathers, but mm-hmm. defeat is always an orphan. And we're not going to let this be a, a, an orphan. He said, I take responsibility for this. I'm the commander in chief. I'm the one who was at fault. Blame me, nobody else. And you know what? Because he was transparent, he accepted the, the responsibility. His Gallup poll ratings went up. They went up by 10%. Wasn't it David Schlesinger's book, 1,000 Days? You yeah. About that? yeah. Arthur, Arthur, Arthur Schlesinger. Arthur yeah. Schlesinger. Yeah. Yeah. He was, he was there. He was a professor at that time, I think, at Columbia. Mm-hmm. And anyway, he came in. He was very close buddy with him. Kennedy wanted an intellectual, public intellectual to be inside. He wanted him to be able to analyze what happened in that presence. It was a smart move. That's what I mean by having two or three heavyweights you wouldn't necessarily have in the chain of command, but you have them there to help you think about, you know, what what's right here, what's wrong, what's good, what's bad. I remember reading that when I was young. My mother had like an original thing. She had a lot of, she still has a lot of Kennedy newspapers from his passing and stuff. And I remember reading 1000 Days and that the, the Bay of Pigs thing really, uh, it really made me think about leadership and how yeah. he handled yeah. it because he had that choice and he owned it. And I think he was, I think really a lot of presidents had owned it at that point in time. But maybe we need that youthful vigor, that power. Yep. And maybe we need a new Camelot. Absolutely. Look at the, look at what Zelensky has done. You know, leaders can be found. They'll emerge in, in, in times of adversity, as I was mentioning. Leaders, that's when Zelensky, well, he was an entertainer. And then he came out, but he ran the, ran, started running the government. And he sort of botched that up. It wasn't in very good shape. And then the Russians came in. And this guy just sort of rises to the occasion. And he's, he's captivating. And he's engaging with the people of Ukraine as well as people around the world. And, you know, he's nightly. It reminds me of FDR and the radio talks he used to give. And Zelensky gives these, these these TV talks, and he really kept the country together. And who would have, who could have imagined that them taking on the Russians as they had? Yeah, and a little bit of Churchill too. A lot of Churchill. Yeah, yeah. They, they often say you know he's he's Zelensky is a Ch- Churchill in the baseball hat or something. That was also what we used to say about Rudy Giuliani. Remember that when and when when they with nine eleven. Yeah, I love Churchill. He's been amazing. Well, David, it's been wonderful to have you on the show. Give us your plug so people can find you anywhere. I was pleased, sir. Uh, okay, fine. At davidgerding.com. And always remember Chris Voss. He was very important getting me here. Thank you. There you go. Thank you very much, David, for being okay. on the show. We certainly appreciate Thanks. it. Thanks to my audience for tuning in. Go to youtube.com, Fortress Chris Voss. Go to goodreads.com, Fortress Chris Voss. All the places you see us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and all those places in between. Be good to each other. Stay safe. And we'll see you guys next time. Terrific.